You're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. Give me a full ballerina skirt and a hint of saloon and I'm on board. Mm. I can't go back. Welcome to the She Became Visible podcast. I'm your host, Renee Steelman. This podcast is my story. It's your story. It's our story. It's all the stories of all the women who one day knew that it was time to remember who they were, who they are, and stand up and be seen. Welcome, welcome to She Became Visible. Happy birthday to my oldest daughter. She is 44 today. And I have put a halt on all of my children's birthdays because all of my children now are 40 and above. And so I said, that's it. We're not doing this anymore. Nobody can go any higher than you already are because then I have to do the math and explain to people. So anyway, but anyway, happy birthday, babe. So I am so thrilled and I hope you are too that I have the most amazing guest today. And one of the reasons that I love Dr. Um, Harris is because he just explains things so easily for the lay person and the average Joe person on the street to understand. And he's a storyteller and that's how people learn. Let me tell you a little bit about Matt. Dr. Harris teaches a broad array of courses at CSU Pueblo, that's Colorado State University Pueblo, which honestly, after listening to Dr. Harris, some of his podcasts, I was like, can we go to Colorado? Because I need to sign up for his classes. <laughs> so I have to ask him if he does online because I can't imagine, I, I can I can't imagine that he is an amazing teacher with how well he does on his storytelling. Um, he uh, He teaches courses including religion and politics, American religious history, origins of the Constitution, early American or early, I don't know why there's an A there. Dr. Harris served as the chair of the history department from 2010 to 2013 and director of the graduate program in history from 2009 to 2016. He currently directs the legal studies program at Colorado State University in Pueblo. And let me share with you a little bit about what uh, Dr. Harris does in his um spare time. These are some of the books that he has published, The Mormon Church and the Blacks. And let's go back to the very beginning here. Awesome books by Dr. Matt Harris. I happen to have a few of them here on my desk, Ezra Teth Benson and the Making of the Mormon Right. That's what we're mainly going to be talking about today. This is a book that he has coming out next year, Black Mormons and the Struggle for Racial Equality. Uh, this is another book, Thunder from the Right, about Ezra Taft Benson and his radical right conservative ideas. And this is a fabulous book for those of you that are uh, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, because um, the gospel topic essays were put out in around 2015. A lot of people didn't even know they existed. And when they found them, they were still confused. And Dr. Harris goes through and explains them uh, really well. So let me start out. I always like to start on my podcast with this fun little intro. Ask you a question, Elder Ballard. <laughs> yes, it will. 
And in terms of haunting you, I say, boo. <laughs> I love that. It's so funny because when I first downloaded that, Brother Ballard was still alive, and now it kind of, it's a little bit spooky, but it really, to me, is just kind of ironical, and I love irony. So let me stop talking and let me bring Dr. Harris on stage. Hello. Hi, Renee. <laughs> How are you? I'm great. I love the intro. That was really terrific. Well, thank you. So Colorado, I've heard a lot of good things about it. I've only been um, to uh, Telluride. Haven't spent a lot of time in Colorado, um, but um, are you under 14 feet of snow currently? No, we I live in the southern part of the state and we get okay. not we don't get what they get up north. So, OK, all I'm right. hoping well, we get snow. <laughs> OK, all right. Because it was funny when I, I made some arrangements to attend an event and tell you right. And the, the lady basically said to me, uh, don't even bother flying in. It'd be easier for you just to drive. And I was so confused because I thought, well, I'll fly to Denver and and then I'll just take a little you know rental car. And they're like, no, no, it'll be eight hours from Denver. And I was like, oh, OK, that's how well I know Colorado. <laughs> oh, but anyway, I'm so like I said, do you offer online classes? My colleagues do. I don't. I like okay. the interaction with students in person. <sighs> I love, see, now I love you even more because that was one of the hardest things for me is trying to take some classes online. I just do better sitting in a seat um, out of my home, uh, visually watching the instructor in the front, watching them, you know, draw something on the board. I just learn better that way. So I, I have to move to Colorado now. You've just answered my question. So there you go. <laughs> So one of the things that I, I loved about you was, um, particularly out of all of the books that you've uh, written, this particular book, Ezra Taft Benson and the Making of the Mormon Rite, really, really hit home to me. And I think because, you know, one of the things people talk about with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is that it's only a couple hundred years old. And unfortunately, they kept really good records. And so it's not like some of the other Christian religions that are thousands of years old and they're relying on manuscripts found in the desert and translations and whatnot. You know, we go more from, um, we have other scriptures besides the Bible. Um, and so there's a, there's a history there that you can go back. In fact, I was looking at, um, uh, Benson's, um, some of Benson's, um, his history, he was born in 1829. I mean, 1899. I mean, 1899. That is amazing. When you do the timeline of when did the saints leave Nauvoo? When did they get to Salt Lake? When did Brigham Young die? You know, and then he's born 20 something years after Brigham Young dies. I mean, it puts things in such a weird perspective and not only that, but just for the audience, because I've already told Matt this, um, but I, when my parents joined the church, David O. McKay was the prophet. Spencer W. Kimball was my prophet as a young adult. Gordon B. Hinckley was my prophet. Ezra Taft Benson was my prophet as a young adult. And so reading, reading Matt's story of things that were going on in the background when I just as a young mother, I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to keep six kids from tearing down the church, you know, that I, I don't have time to even know about any of this other stuff. I listen to a conference talk and I go, check, check, I got it. Okay, I'm supposed to have more babies. And, um, you know, that's my take from Ezra Taft Benson's message, you know. 
Um, so I, I, there was absolutely no historic history going on. I was not reading anything historical. I don't even think I was reading the ensign. I was reading the children's friend. So, um, so this is where you, you, you read these things and it's an eye opener and it's a little bit of, there's a little bit of a shock value, a little bit of deconstruction. So talk to me a little bit. I, I've heard you explain as a historian, um, how you go about when you're writing historical books like this and you're trying to stay away from any kind of confirmation bias, but how do you go about that? Tell us a little bit about how you, how you go about recording his historical books. That's a good question. Um, so you start with the historical question first, and hopefully the historical question is important. Mm. So for example, you're playing ping pong and you look and you see the ping pong table is green. You might ask, you know, why is this table green? Well, who cares? That's not really an important question, right? Right. But another question would be with Benson. Uh, how did Benson become a leading conservative in post-Cold War or post-World War II America? What okay. what led him to that point? How did he justify or juggle his ecclesiastical role with his political ambitions? What did Eisenhower say when word got back to him that Benson called him a communist? Those are all big questions that 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 flow in my mind. Why did it take so long until 1978 to lift the priesthood ban when a lot of Protestant and even Catholic um, uh, denominations had changed their theology towards black people in the 60s? Why did it take the saints another whole decade and a half to, to change theirs? Mm -hmm. And so those are the questions that historians like to answer. And, and of course, we have a hypothesis, maybe why we think it happened the way that it did. But once you dive into the, the sources, then you, you have to be open and flexible enough to, to change your views if necessary. And for me, I when I talk to Latter-day Saints, particularly young Latter-day Saint scholars, those of whom are in PhD programs, I always tell them, if you're writing on Mormon history, choose a topic where you can get the best sources. Mm -hmm. And that means journals, diaries, meeting minutes, I mean, letters, those are the best sources that historians can get in. Sometimes um, too many people who write LDS history, they just rely on the recycling, you know, an enzyme talk or something yeah. from a newspaper. Those things are important, but they're not really the main source that historians, you know, need to construct a full picture. Mm -hmm. And so when I take on um, research projects, I only take on projects where I know I can get the, the sources I need to do justice to the topic. And so anyway, that's how I do it. You you start with research questions and then you develop right. hypotheses and you just go from there. Well, and one of the thing I, things I loved was um, name some of the sources that you actually had access to. I mean, it was remarkable what you, where you went and what you what you uncovered in, in not just, you didn't just head to Salt Lake. And I just thought that was remarkable. T tell, tell the audience some of the resources that you used for this book. Yeah, so the Benson book, I'll, I'll complete a couple of, actually, I'm going to complete three research projects to answer your question, if you don't yeah. mind. The first one would be Benson. Benson was not as hard as one would think, because he was a public figure, mm. which meant that he left a footprint in many different archives. And so I knew that Benson had papers in the Eisen, at the Eisenhower Presidential Library, because he mm -hmm. was in Eisenhower's cabinet. And so I went to um, Albaline, Kansas, and I spent a long time researching in the Ike papers there, and Benson stuff was there. What I didn't 
expect to find in that collection was a lot of private stuff was there too. Oh. It, yeah, I thought it would just be farm policy stuff and letters that maybe Benson had written from Washington, D.C. to President McKay in Salt Lake or something along those lines. But I, I found a lot of private stuff. And um, I'll give just one teaser that, uh, well, one teaser is Benson wrote David O. McKay's secretary, a woman named Claire Middlemas. And he said that I'm taking on a lot of heat right now. This is in 1955, just before the second term in Eisenhower's uh, presidential campaign. And there was tremendous pressure to have Ike drop Benson from the cabinet. Benson was enormously controversial because of his farm policies. And I'm sure we'll get into that. Mm -hmm. Anyway, but one of the letters in the Eisenhower Library was Benson was feeling the pressure of people who just absolutely despised him. And he told Claire Middlemas, he said, would you please put my name on the prayer roll at the temple? I'm mm -hmm. struggling. Mm -hmm. And so when I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in Albany, Kansas, I'm finding this stuff and it's just me and maybe three other people in the archive that day. And I'm just, this is really interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, the other archives would be the Burt Society archives. Mm. Um, Appleton, Wisconsin. I uh, the late the late great D. Michael Quinn, great historian of Mormonism, just passed away. He tried to get access to the same collection in the early '90s, and for whatever reason, they denied him. Hmm. And maybe I got somebody who was having a good day, but I got access to the entire collection. Wow! And so th that collection is amazing because nobody's ever seen it before. And Ezra Taft Benson was so close to the Birch founder, a guy named Robert Welch, that they would write each other letters, Dear Bob, Dear Ezra. Mm -hmm. And at one, one of the letters, was, which is great, um, Dear Bob, I've been praying about this. I've been thinking about this. I want you to relocate the John Birch Society headquarters to Midway, Utah, right next to my house. And Welch writes back, dear Ezra, that's so generous of you, but we're happily located in Belmont, Massachusetts, which is where <laughs> they were at the time. They later moved to Appleton, Wisconsin, but we're happy where we're at. It'd be too much money to move, but that's so kind of you to think of us. Yeah. So that's that one. Um, there's, of course, the LDS Church archives, which I got um, things there. His diaries are there, but they're not accessible after he goes into the cabinet, which is strange. Yeah. I have all of his diaries pre-52, but not post-52. They don't want those out. And one can only surmise what's in there. Yeah. Um, the, the, the second book, um, the Black and the Mormon book, the one that'll be out next year, all the material in there is new. I got access to the Joseph Fielding Smith papers that have never been <sighs> seen before. Yeah, I got access to the Spencer Kimball papers that have never been seen before. Uh, I got access to the Hubie Brown papers that have never been seen before. So I got access to all these different collections. It really, really enriches the story, and it's it's it really is a it's an empowering feeling when you you can you have sources that nobody has, and you can make historical arguments based on those sources. And I always tell people that. Um, when I, when, when I've been the only one to see a source, I don't like that. I like those mm -hmm. sources to be available to other people too, where they can have that privilege, hmm. but I don't make the rules. And when somebody gives me a source in confidence, the first thing I say to the scholar, usually it's a scholar asking, I say, I can't share this with you. I have not been given permission. They gave it to me and me only. Oh. And 
And sometimes I've, I've asked the families, um, I interview with families too, the families of general authorities. And sometimes uh, I know that there's, the family has kept their, their late father's papers. And so I go to the family sometimes, I interview with them. Nobody wants to give you their, their father or their grandfather's diaries to a stranger, right? Right. So I have to pass interviews and happy to say that I'm batting 100%. And I'll tell you a quick one about that. Um, Spencer Kimball's papers are not available in the Salt Lake City Archives, Church Mm. History Archives. So how did I get access? Well, I interviewed for two hours on the phone one day with Spencer Kimball's son, the custodian of the papers, who donated them to the Church History Archives. Then after I passed a two-hour interview, he invited me to Provo to his home. And I went to his home and what was supposed to be maybe a two hour meeting turned out to be an eight or nine hour meeting with dinner. And his son wasn't just a the, the caretaker of his father's papers. He also wrote two magnificent books on his father's presidency. So the son was also a biographer. And so we had a mutual interest in telling the story of his father. And I'm, I'm sad to say that Ed Kimball died um, a couple of years ago, so he won't mm-hmm. be able to see this book. Yeah, but I did try out the major arguments with him in my book, and one of the arguments was I told him I said your father was going to lift the ban the minute he became the president, but he had people in the twelve who were holding him up, and Ed just looked at me and smiled, nodding affirmatively. This is stuff he can't write because he was writing for Desert Book, right? So I tried out all of my my ideas on him, and that was encouraging, knowing that. He had seen some of the sources I had seen and and all of that. Anyway, so the Spencer Kimball, Hubie Brown, um, Joseph Fielding Smith, a bunch of other paper collections. BYU has enormous, a great papers collection there. Um, One of the chapters in my my next book, The Second Class Saints, it has a chapter on how the federal government is going to shut down BYU if they don't admit um, African-American students and faculty. Yeah. And the... The, art, the collection for that is a restricted collection. I had to get permission from, I, th- I think it was, it was certainly the president of the university, might have even been a general authority. And I have no, I don't think they knew what was in that collection. Otherwise they wouldn't have let a scholar look at it. Oh, wow, wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm convinced because it deals with, you know, a story that's never been told before. The, gov- the feds are putting big pressure on BYU to lift, to admit black uh, students. And of course, the uh, the board of trustees and Ernest Wilkinson, the BYU president, they didn't want black students because it would lead to interracial marriage. And that's what mm-hmm. terrified Right. So anyway, one last one with source material. I'm writing a biography now on Hubie Brown and the late, great Hubie Brown, who's the exact opposite to Esotaf Benson. And the Brown family has been incredibly gracious to me, mm-hmm. donating or letting me see papers from their collection. Right. And Brown, what Brown did was a lot of the papers, the Brown collection is closed off in Salt Lake. It's not open for researchers. Interesting. So I found that the Brown family, uh, they had inherited the letters that in those days, as I'm sure you know, Renee, when they would write a type, a letter on a typewriter, there would be a carbon copy. Yeah. Yes. Well, yes, I remember that, Matt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And anyway, when I was growing up in the 80s, I remember that a little bit, too. So the Brown family, they have all the carbon copies. 
And, and, <laughs> and so I know the originals are in Salt Lake, but you know, as a scholar like me, I don't publish the letters. I need the letters to make, help me make my, my historical arguments. Right. And they, so they apologized. They said, oh, we just got carbon copies. And I said, are they readable? Oh yeah, they're very readable. That's all I need. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. And I, I've been telling the family, they're wonderful people. And I said, you know, you really need to put this in an archive because God. it just takes one fire or one, oh. one flooded base. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and the church is usually pretty good about if you make an arrangement with them, you know, here are my, here's my ancestors' papers. Give me a digital copy. They'll do that. Right, right. So I told them, I said, you know, your your offspring can have a record of all of this. Yeah. But this does need to go into an archive. It has to be available to researchers. Don't right. give it to an archive that'll close it off. Exactly. That's the key here. Yeah. Well, and I, I think what's so beautiful about your work is um, you definitely show the personality of the people. I like a comment that I heard you say one time when you said that um, one of the things that you enjoy about your research is you had a little bit of a bias about Joseph Fielding Smith. You, you kind of thought of him as a grouchy, uh, you know, just a mean old man. And after doing some study and some research, you discovered that he had a great sense of humor. He had a, a you know, kind of a playful personality. And I, I kind of thought the same thing with your book on Benson. As much as I, um, my memory was that every time I came away from one of his talks, um, I, I, I wasn't happy. I was very like, you know, but at the time, as I said, at the time I was just obedient and wasn't using any kind of critical thinking whatsoever. And um, so I just was angry. And then because of, of, of what you've written, I am because of the beautiful glory of YouTube, I was able to go back and, and look at some of the things that you can find on YouTube. And there was one that was an interview he, that it was, I think, made. It was a movie that the church released in 1979. And he's sitting there with Flora and he's tell, like, talking about his childhood. And it made me, you know, you know, the Stephen Covey seek first to understand. And it made me understand in, in many directions, not just in, oh, this is why he did this, but unfortunately, yes, this is why he did this. But he's talking about his childhood and he's talking about being the oldest of 11 children. And my father was called on a mission and we moved into a two bedroom home and my mother, you know, weaved the rugs and made the curtains with the linen that she had you know, woven. And um, then my father left on his mission and I was the man of the family. And he's telling all of these stories and of this idealistic childhood that he had. And I thought, oh, well, that makes sense to me now when you stand up and give the talk to the women in 1987 and you say, you know, your entire purpose in life is to conceive, to nurture and to bear children because that's what he saw his mother doing. He loved his mother. He loved his family. That is a, he loved his childhood. That is perfect childhood. That is the way a perfect family would be set up. That is the law. And, and so it made, it softened my heart a little bit. And, uh, but then I love how you, you transition from how he became radicalized and the influences that caused this. And even when you talk about his time in Germany, and how that it, I'm sure it frightened him. And, and as you mentioned, probably carried what today we'd call PTSD. Back then they didn't call it that. But what he saw 
scared him to death that this could happen in the United States of America. So it helps you to understand it doesn't justify it though. And so tell us a little bit about this transition from the Idaho boy to kind of as he grew. And I love, I love the story of, you know, his education and, and the fact that even though he came from very humble beginnings, he really strived for education. So kind of start us on this journey a little bit about where he went and, and then how he became so radicalized. And then we'll move into how that radical mindset is current today. Yeah, that's great. So, so he's from Whitney, Idaho, as I think most of your listeners will probably know. And he grew up in a small farming community. He was um, friends with another person who would be his associate in the Quorum of the Twelve and the top leadership for decades, a guy named Harold Lee, lived in the next community over. And they played basketball together and against each other. And uh, as Benson grew up, he, he went to BYU, graduated in the 1920s. And one of the great collections at BYU is from the Lowry Nelson collection, who was a teacher of Ezra Taft Benson's at BYU. And he talks about Benson uh, in this collection. He talks about what it was like having Benson as a student. This, is, this would have been after Benson was called as an apostle. And he said he was a pretty good student. And so it was kind of fun to read about the professor commenting about you know young Ezra. Anyway, Ezra graduates from uh, BYU in the 1920s, he goes to get a master's degree in agricultural economics at Iowa State University. And from there, he enrolls in a PhD program at the University of California, Berkeley, which of course is kind of comical because Berkeley yeah. <laughs> becomes one of the most liberal, you know, universities in the world. And here's Ezra, you know, at Berkeley. Well, because of the pressures of having a young family and needing money, he didn't finish his PhD at Berkeley and went to work for a farm cooperative back in Idaho. We could spend a lot of time on this, but right. uh, anyway, he rose up through the farm cooperative ranks in the state of Idaho. And then he was noticed at the national level because of his stellar work in Idaho. And a lot of people don't know this story, but Benson's first foray into politics. Well, let me back up. I'm getting ahead, one step ahead of myself. So Benson's at the state level leading the farm cooperative effort in Idaho. And then he is called to uh, essentially take on the same position, but in Washington, D.C., over the entire country. So Benson's in Washington, D.C. in the 1930s during the Great Depression and also during the New Deal, which is Franklin Roosevelt's liberal program to put people back to work. It's the program that gives us social security. Mm -hmm. And it's essentially the program that um, teaches Americans that the federal government can play a safety role function if our states and our charities fail us. That is, they run out of money to help us. Mm -hmm. So the government can, can play that role. And that's the first time in American history where the federal government is uh, going to be a safety net for people who lose their jobs. And anyway, Benson's there as a as a conservative he's watching this that the government's playing a role in putting people back to work priming the pump you, you can't generate more revenue unless you get people working and paying their taxes and feeling better about themselves so benson's watching all this stuff and he has this visceral re re reaction to franklin roseville he can't stand roseville he thinks he's the antichrist 
And but I want to just really emphasize that Benson's just a just a really ultra conservative guy at this point. He's not he hasn't been radicalized. And in 1948, uh, a guy named Thomas Dewey from New York recognizes Benson's stellar work in farm cooperatives. And Dewey runs against Harry Truman. And of course, Dewey's a Republican, Truman's a Democrat. And Dewey tells Benson, if I win the nomination, I want you to be my my agricultural secretary. So this is the first time where Benson has um, ambitions of being in national politics. And keep in mind that that he was called into the Quorum of the Twelve just five years earlier. So he's a mm. young apostle with a young family. And now the allure of national politics is just really scintillating toward, to him. And well, it turns out Dewey doesn't win. And But Benson was excited. He went to DC in 48. He went to the um, Dewey's presidential headquarters to hang out, to watch the returns with his good friend, Ernest Wilkinson, who would later yeah. become the BYU president. Yeah. And uh, they, they got to know each other. Just a quick pause in the story. When Benson was the state president in Washington, D.C., that's when he took employment with the National Cooperative Association. And when he was a state president, he had three people in his state that would play leadership roles that would achieve some prominence in the church. One was Ernest Wilkinson, who would become BYU's president in 1952. Another one was Cleon Skousen, who worked for the uh, FBI from 1933 to 51. And then the other one's David Kennedy, who would go on to be an ambassador and also the Secretary of Treasury in the Nixon administration. So uh, Benson has these three high-profile Mormons in his ward. Anyway, um, so he doesn't go into the cabinet. Dewey loses. And in 1952, during the presidential year, a guy named Arthur Watkins, senator of Utah, contacts Benson, and he said, I just gave your name to President Eisenhower, President-elect Eisenhower, for you to be his cabinet secretary. And a conservative Ohio uh, senator named um, Robert Taft, who's a distant cousin to Ezra Taft, but not LDS, mm. also had nudged Ike and said, hey, my cousin in Utah, he's got great experience with farmers and farm cooperatives. I think you ought to look at him. So Eisenhower does. and. Um, I gets the call, or excuse me, Benson gets the call when he's at a, preparing to speak at a BYU devotional. They somehow track him down on the campus at BYU. He takes the call from the president, and the president says, I want you to come back to, to New York City, which is where Ike's headquarters were at the time. Let's interview. I want to meet you. And anyway, Benson uh, seeks permission from President McKay. McKay said that you could do the church a real favor by doing this. So President McKay thinks that this is this wonderful missionary opportunity to have a you know a Mormon apostle in the nation's one of the right. nation's highest positions in government. So Benson goes back and he meets with President Eisenhower at the Hotel Commodore, still there today, this wonderful hotel not far from uh, Central Park. And he he goes in and he they exchange some pleasantries and Benson then drops a bombshell on Ike. He said. I didn't even vote for you. <laughs> and Ike being the self-assuming guy that he was, he said, that doesn't matter to me. Yeah. And Eisenhower, or Benson said, well, I voted for my cousin, Taft, who, who you beat, whom you beat in the primaries. And Ike said again, that doesn't matter to me. Yeah. He said, what matters is, will you um, help to cut farm subsidies? 
they're out of control. The government's giving too many subsidies to farmers. And we should pause for a minute and just ask ourselves why this is so. Well, the government has an interest in our food, right? <laughs> no surprise there. Yeah. And so the government uh, has, has subsidized farmers in the event of droughts and famines and bad crop years. I mean, they have to survive and sustain themselves. So the government has always subsidized farmers. And anyway, so, uh, but Ike says it's out of control. We need to cut farm subsidies. Now you can imagine, Renee, what's going to happen if Americans are being told that their domestic economy, these farmers, their, their, their paycheck is going to be cut in half. Right. They're going to be upset. They can't feed their families, including Mormons. So anyway, Benson uh, takes the position against his better judgment. And um, he, when he's in Washington, he, he struggles. He's not a politician. Mm -hmm. And in order to do well in a position like Benson's, you really, really have to schmooze. You have to compromise. He is not a schmoozer. He's not a right. compromiser. He's not a politician. He is a man who governs his life on principle. Mm -hmm. And now on the face of it, that's that's a good thing, right? I suppose if you have good principles. But in Washington, D.C., you have so many constituencies you have to worry about. Mm -hmm. And Benson doesn't understand that. And one of his aides made a, a, a quip at Benson's expense. He said, Secretary Benson only follows two Smiths, Adam Smith and Joseph Smith. And of course, Adam Smith is the great 18th century economist who argues for laissez-faire, the government should not get involved. Yeah. Let the, let the free market regulate itself. That's Adam Smith. Right, right. So, you know, Benson's idea would be if there's a drought, he told a Texas governor named Alan Shivers in 1953, if there's a drought, pray for rain. That's his response, you know, and Governor Shivers is like, uh, how about some money? <laughs> right. You know, that sounds a little bit like uh, some uh, guy I know in Utah that was uh, praying for rain. And, and that's funny that you would say that because, you know, one of the things that's hard for people to understand if they haven't experienced things is that what works for some people doesn't work for another. I, re I mean, this is a little bit off, but just even simple things, like I remember when I was kind of exploring the different uh, worlds of eating, like, should I be vegan? Should I be a vegetarian? Should I be a carnivore? And you would talk with the you know strict vegans that were very dedicated to eating that way because they were more interested in animal cruelty than nutrition necessarily. And then I remember thinking to myself, but does that work in Alaska or, you know, does that work in other parts of the country? Can you be a vegan if you live in certain areas of Africa? Is, are there, is it a, is something that the entire world can accept and live that way? And, you know, the answer is probably not. I mean, that's why we have, like you say, and so that's what you have is you have a man that's coming, even like you mentioned, his co-ops that worked really well at that time in Idaho. But is that something that the entire United States could do? Is that something that would work for the entire world? Probably not. And so it's kind of goes back to that idealistically reference, I'm going to reference my life, therefore my life should be the template for everyone's life. But yeah, there's, you know, no, there's no doubt about it. I mean, if you, well, let's, let's get Benson radicalized first. And then I, I want to comment on yeah, yeah. Benson and Skousen and some of their political views. Yeah. Because I, I can speak from a personal nature with some of these things. 
But anyway, so Benson is, um, he's in the Eisenhower's cabinet. He um, does not like dealing with these different viewpoints, as I mentioned. Leonard Arrington, the church historian in the 1970s, he said something interesting. He said, quote, Elder Benson did not like dealing with commies, Jews, and Negroes. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so that's, you can, that's an exact quote from his diary. Well, anyway, um, so he's in Washington. He, 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 it's a humiliating experience for him because when you're cutting someone's subsidies, their farm subsidies, they're not happy. And so he's announcing these cuts to the farmers and uh, they respond by throwing their shoes at him. They throw eggs at him. They throw trash at him. Here's this proud apostle who has this incredible level of deference in his church where people stand when he walks into yes. his room. Yeah. And now he's having, you know, farmers with dirt under their fingernails and manure on their boots, chucking things at him. Right. And they're angry. And I'm thinking of a woman from Logan, Utah. She wrote Reuben Clark, who was in the first presidency at the time. And he was a sort of a mentor to Ezra Taft. And this woman wrote President Clark. And she said, you know, President Clark, my husband and I are, are farmers. And this is the amount of money we get from the government. She spells it out. Mm -hmm. And she said, uh, Secretary Benson is threatening to cut it by 80%. We will go bankrupt. Our children will starve. What do we do? Mm -hmm. And that really puts Clark, of course, in a very, very tough position because on the one hand, they're trying to separate Secretary Benson's politics from the church. But on the other hand, you really can't. And so President Clark writes the, the poor woman back and says, you know, Elder Benson does what Elder Benson does. We, we would only comment on his religious things. And so that's the kind of stuff they're getting from the first presidency. And they're also reading the news where Secretary Benson is just getting vilified in the press, absolutely vilified. Even members of his own party, they tell Ike after the first term, they said, this guy's a disaster. You got to get rid of him. Hmm. And uh, David O. McKay recognizes that, that he's controversial, that Benson's controversial. And so he takes a, his own initiative to fly back to D.C. to meet with the general, with President Eisenhower. And he said, uh, President McKay said to Ike, just want you to know that we'll take him back. You don't have to keep him for a second term. We'll take him back. It was just a nice way of saying, go ahead and release him. We know he's controversial. And Eisenhower, he politely declined. He, it's almost as though he didn't hear any of the criticisms from people in his own party, from the church president. He said, I, I want him. Hmm. And so he had Ezra back for a, a second term. And it got so bad by the end of the second term that Richard Nixon, who was Ike's vice president, he was running for the presidency in 1960 against Jack Kennedy. And Nixon told Eisenhower, he said, you got to get Benson out of the country when I'm campaigning. I don't want him near me. He'll hurt me because he's so controversial. And so Eisenhower interestingly enough, didn't like Nixon, didn't endorse Nixon, but he did listen to him. And he he, he sent uh, Benson on this multi-country tour about the time that Nixon was trying to, to run for the presidency. And I don't th think that Benson had any idea why he was being sent out of the country at that time. But it was to get away from Nixon so that people wouldn't tie the two together. <laughs> so he gets home, he leaves, um, he leaves the government. And oh, I should say one quick thing about Eisenhower is Benson's upset that Eisenhower does a couple of things that really bother him. One is that Eisenhower 
supports the Civil Rights Act of 1957. Mm. Benson is about as anti-Black in his theology as one can get. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't think the federal government should be uh, supporting civil rights. And he goes on record to President Eisenhower. He said, "This is we shouldn't do this. Now, keep in mind what's going on, right? 1955, a young boy from Mississippi is murdered, Emmett Till, 15-year-old kid. Uh, six months later, in December of 55, Rosa Parks makes a stand, right? She gets arrested. And, and then um, after Brown versus the Board of Education, that Supreme Court decision that integrates schools, uh, we have Little Rock, Arkansas in September of 1957, where these nine African-American kids are trying to enroll based on a court order and all these white supremacists and bigots are coming out to keep them from enrolling. I mean, the nation is in turmoil and Elder Benson just doesn't see that the federal government should be, you know, working along the lines of civil rights. The second thing that he was upset about was that Eisenhower told him, Benson, and also other conservatives, that he would roll back the liberal New Deal, that he would cut many of its programs. Mm. And Eisenhower is not an ideologue. He's not an Adam Smith guy that, you know, laissez-faire at all costs. Right. He's, a, he's very much a pragmatist. And given his background in the United States military, you'd have to be a pragmatist to be as successful mm-hmm. as he was. And let me give you a, a quick story about what a pragmatist looks like using a, a sports metaphor. And this is a Franklin Delano Roosevelt metaphor. And Roosevelt said something that was really insightful. He said, I compare my presidency to a quarterback on a football team. I take the snap, I go back, I throw a play for 10 yards, the receiver catches it, it works. I'm gonna do the same play again, 10 yards. I'm gonna do the same play again. I'm gonna keep doing the same play over and over and over again until the defense catches on. And when they catch on, I'll do something different. That's a pragmatist. You're gonna do what works. Mm-hmm. And so Eisenhower had pledged when he ran in 52 to cut back the liberal New Deal. But when he got into office, he gets all of these letters from Americans saying, look, if you cut, if you cut social security, I'm gonna be in trouble. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing that happens with Ronald Reagan in 1980. Senior citizens write him letters. You can't cut these programs that we rely on. Right. So Eisenhower listens to his constituents and refuses to roll back a lot of these programs. And, you know, a person like Benson, this is me being critical for a moment, a person has enormous privilege. He's not having to worry about where his next meal is coming from. Right. 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 And he, so he doesn't get that, that, that these people who need these programs it, it really speaks to their very livelihood, their very sustenance. So ben, uh, Eisenhower doesn't roll back these programs and Benson and other conservatives are f- furious with him. And in 1958, Benson gives this, this general conference talk where he talks about, for the first time, communists are within the government. They're in education, they're in the newspaper industry, they're in our nation's churches, and they're in our government. Mm-hmm. And he's making an oblique reference to some people in Eisenhower's cabinet who he thinks are communists. It's kind of a crazy thing to think. And then when he leaves office in 1961, this is where the wheels fall off the truck. So just to pause the story for a quick moment, the seeds of his radicalism are planted when he's in Washington. Mm -hmm. He doesn't like the liberal new deal. He doesn't like the lobbyist that he thinks has undue influence. And he also starts to uh, 
entertain anti-Semitic ideas. It's hmm. hard for people to hear a Mormon apostle who does not like Jewish people. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I think that changes. I don't mm-hmm. think that's consistent in his life. But in 1957, when he's in Washington, he and Reuben Clark, who's another anti-Semite, they exchange letters. And in this letter, they, they, they um, exchange a pamphlet called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. It's the most anti-Semitic pamphlet in world history. It basically was written in the late 19th century. It's uh, proven to be a forgery. But anyway, it was written in the late 19th century. And the thrust of the pamphlet says that Jews are going to control the world. They're going to control the world's money supply. They're going to create a one world government. And they're going to thrust communism and in, in, uh, socialism down our throats. That's what this pamphlet says. And Benson is absolutely taken back by this, as is Clark. And they know it's controversial because when Clark and he exchanged it, they talked about not having this pamphlet get out to other church leaders. Hmm. So, yeah, because Israel was just um, made a state in 1948 and Mm -hmm. David O. McKay and other church leaders supported the creation of the the, uh, Israeli state, Mm -hmm. whereas Reuben Clark did not. Hmm. Anyway, so there's some conspiracy radical ideas um, that are being sown in the 1950s. And when Benson leaves government service in 1961, he says all the right things about Ike. He gives a general conference talk, for instance, and he talks about what a wonderful world leader Eisenhower is. But in private, he's harboring doubts about his former boss. And if he just had a few of those doubts, those doubts will really, really mushroom when he meets the John Birch Society founder, Robert Welch, in the spring of 1962, just a few months after he leaves Washington. And in 1958, Robert Welch created the Birch Society, who was named after a fallen soldier in World War II, a guy named John Birch, who was, mm-hmm. who was killed. And Robert Welch is an interesting guy. He's brilliant. He's got a photographic memory. He, uh, <laughs> he was at Harvard Law School, and he's one of those guys that thought he knew more than his professors. And the guy that he thought he knew more, <laughs> a guy named Felix Frankfurt, or a Jewish professor who would later go on to, to be a Supreme Court justice. But Frankfurter, he butted heads because Frankfurter was very liberal and Welch was conservative. Well, anyway, Welch didn't think the law was for him, so he dropped out. And with his brother, he founded the, the Mars Candy Corporation, Mars Candy Bar, Sugar Daddy, all of that. <laughs> Makes millions. And as a young man, he decides to give up the candy business because he's already rich and he wants to fight communism. And so in 1958, he has a bunch of friends and they talk about creating an organization after this fallen soldier. And Welch at that meeting presents a, a book that he had written that was just meant to be private. So it's an unpublished manuscript just to be circulated among friends. And in that book, he calls Eisenhower a communist and Eisenhower's inner circle a communist, including the CIA director, a guy named Alan Dulles, Alan Dulles's brother, John Foster Dulles, who was the secretary of state. And then he also called Milton Eisenhower, Dwight's brother and close confidant, also a commie. So Benson gets a hold of the politician in the spring of 62, and he's absolutely mesmerized by it that Ike's a commie and all of these shenanigans are going on. And he buys into it, lock, stock and barrel. And he's so influenced by the politician 
that he sends the politician this book. He buys copies on his own dime. He buys them for the church president. He buys them for Reuben Clark, who's in the first presidency. Actually, not Reuben Clark. He buys it. Reuben Clark had died by that point. Dies it for Hubie, uh, purchase of copy for Hubie Brown and Henry Moyle, McKay's counselors. And also for each member of the Quorum of the Twelve, he sends a copy of the politician, the senators and congressmen. He sends it to J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director. I mean, he's just like, and he sent in the letter he sends to the church leaders, the higher, the, the governing leaders of the church. He said that he sends them the same letter. I found the same letter in multiple collections, but all he did was just change out the name. Dear so-and-so. Dear so-and-so. Yeah. <laughs> oh, if you would have had a word word processor back then, it would have oh, been so yeah. much easier. <laughs> That's, yeah, it's true. Well, he says that the same letter, and he said, you got to read this book. It'll change your life. Now, these guys, they, they get the book, and they start to read parts of it, and they realize right away it's trash. It's just garbage. He's calling his former boss a commie, and guys that he worked with in the cabinet, commies. I mean, that's just crazy talk. And Hubie Brown got a hold of, of course, read the politician, and he was so angry with Benson. He wrote him a series of really, really aggressive letters saying, how could you do this? You could be just so disloyal to your former boss. Now, Brown's a Democrat. I mean, he's not really speaking at it from a sort of a, you know, partisan perspective. He just thinks this is just, he's just being disloyal. So he writes him this bad, this, this series of really aggressive letters calling Ezra Taft on the, on the carpet. And Taft being the proud guy that he was, that's what they called him, Taft. He wrote back to Brown and he just said, you know, you're a Canadian socialist. Who are you to tell me what to do? And Henry Moyle, the other counselor, who was also a Democrat, he called in Ezra Taft and he said, Taft, I can't believe you did this. And Taft was worried. I've never shared this with anybody on a podcast before. So here you go, Renee. Um, Taft, Taft told, uh, or uh, Moyle told Taft, he said, he said, I know you're worried that we're upset with you. Don't, don't worry. We'll leave you on your committees. We know you need income. And in those days, the general authorities, uh, they sat on boards in order to supplement their meager church salaries. Mm -hmm. That's been addressed today. They make more money, you know, a livable wage today. But in those days, right. they didn't make a lot. And so they made their money serving on boards. And Ezra Taft was really, really worried that Moyle, who was the, the guru over the church's finances, would take him mm -hmm. off his board assignment. And almost brought the church into bankruptcy, you know. <laughs> he did. He did. Yeah. You know, go to Florida today, and if you, you walk around Florida and see LDS-owned properties, you can thank Henry Dinwiddie Moyle. Yeah. He's the one that did that. Yeah. And he paid a high price for it, too, because other people in the 12, they uh, they did not like what he was, how aggressive he was being with the church's funds. It led to some bad karma. But he died, uh, we'll go off strip here just for a moment. Yeah. When uh, Moyle died in... Um, I think it was September of 1963, October, September, October of 63. He was a broken hearted man because uh, David O. McKay had cut him out of all decision making mm -hmm. because he was stretching the church's finances so thin. Right. And they replaced him with a no name apostle a guy named Nathan Tanner from Canada. <laughs> Nobody had ever heard of this guy before and not a very dynamic man, not a very dynamic speaker. But they called him in because he was a dynamic manager. 
and he had to repair the damage that Moyle had done with the finances. And that was what Tanner's genius was, right. was putting the church back on a sound financial footing. And he doesn't get enough credit for that because that's not something you're going to talk about in general conference. Right? right. Well, you don't want, yeah, you don't want the, the the whole topic of the bankruptcy and and how David O. McKay didn't have any control over it. And then there's like the controversy and amongst the others. And it goes, you know, it goes along. Some of my commenters are saying things like the transparency or wait, I thought they all got along. I thought it was just one big happy family. And because that's the image that they want portrayed. And then you start finding out how much, you know, uh, inner fighting there was, and you're like, what? That's not what we heard. But you know what's funny, Matt, is, um, and as I mentioned in the beginning of this, this is such a fascinating topic for me because it's a lived experience. You know, my parents joined the church in 1962. Oh. And um, when they heard about uh, Benson and his Birch Society, my mom was right there. She's like, we need to join this John Birch Society. And oh. she, you know, and then as the years progressed, she was a Glenn Beck listener. And I remember in, I must've been around 1990 or so they were over visiting and she came down with some book that I, I can't remember. It was a church book because that's the only place where she goes is Deseret books. So, so that's, you know, she's got all the truth because um, she shops at Deseret. And so she brought down this book and she said, you need to read this. And I said, mom, I'm not going to read this. And she said, what are you just going to put your head in the sand? You're not going to understand how this works. The communists are taking over our country. And I mean, this is what I grew up with. And, you know, I remember them in the back seat. and, you know, Obama doesn't have a birth certificate. I mean, this is what I grew up with. And I still have members of my family that exactly what, what he was saying then are still being said today. And it's, you know, and I'm really trying to be more of a and rather than a but. So like, and there could be some truths in this and there could be some truths in that, but, you know, and so it, but it's just rings so true in, I grew up during this era and it's fascinating to me now that you're uncovering what was really going on behind the curtain. So go on, keep talking. I'm just saying how this is just. Yeah. Like, well, oh. I want to, I want to, before I get more into the sixties. So we, we've got to his, he's introduced to the Birch Society. Mm -hmm. And let's go back just for a quick moment. I, I should have mentioned this to your listeners, but when Benson goes to Washington in 1953, he receives a special priesthood blessing from David O. McKay, the president, yeah. and Reuben Clark. And this is in my book, Watchmen in the Tower. Mm -hmm. But in this special blessing, he tells Ezra that you are to guard against the Constitution. You are to uh, guard against um, communism. And of course, Benson thinks that anything that deals with the government, a strong, powerful government could be lead to communism. And he will ultimately make no distinction between liberalism, socialism, and communism. Right. And anybody who has a rudimentary understanding of American history and politics knows that there's a world of difference between liberalism, socialism, and communism. And anyway, so he goes back and he feels like it's his apostolic calling to save the constitution from these uh, liberals and socialists and communists. And to be fair to Benson, you know, there's um, Joseph McCarthy is running rampant when he goes back to Washington. Mm -hmm. McCarthy starts his shenanigans in 1950. And by 1953, the time where Benson sworn in January 53, McCarthy has now accused the United States military of being communist. Mm -hmm. He's already accused university professors and ministers of the gospel and uh, businessmen and, you know, a lot of other people. 
But now he's taken, you know, uh, an interest in America's crown jewel, our military, you know, the greatest military in the world, the mid 20th century. We just defeated the uh, some totalitarian powers in World War II and the military's image is at its high point. And all of a sudden we've got this this flunky from Wisconsin who's about ready to lose re-election, trying to make a name for himself. And so he starts to recklessly claim that everybody's a communist. And Benson gets hooked up into this. He believes McCarthy. But also there are some people that flirt with communism. Um, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were executed, husband and wife team for selling secrets. There's strong evidence that they did sell secrets. So Benson's not completely, you know, uh, working in a vacuum here. There's um, Alger Hiss, who was who was imprisoned for allegedly selling secrets to the Soviets. Alger Hiss worked in the agricultural department in the 1930s. Mm. This is Benson's department. Right. So Benson's terrified that there are more Alger Hisses running around. Mm-hmm. And then there's some there's a couple of other people, Klaus Fuse, a guy named Klaus Fuse, and a guy named Dexter Hayden White that are that are alleged to be communists. But I always tell people. Are there communists at the time? Yeah, they're communists. Is it a mm-hmm. real thing? It is. But it's nothing like Benson and McCarthy and what those guys say. They're not running right. universities. They're not running churches. They're not. They see a communist in the bushes when there's not right. a communist in the bushes. Right. That's what we're dealing with here. And yeah. You know, you, and I d- real quick, I'm just going to read from your book in chapter four. Uh, it says in the late 1970s, Benson and Skousen's collaboration developed into near hysteria as the two speculated about the capitalist conspiracy. In an unusually blunt letter to Benson in 1977, Skousen identified General Ford, Nelson Rockefeller, and Henry Kissinger as the master planners of the secret cabal, whose foreign policy establishment of Wall Street bankers and lawyers moved into the very heart of the establishment and took over. And so, yeah. Now we have a lot of stuff going on right now because Henry Kissinger just died. And so there is a little bit of controversy on all of that. Benson and Skousen did not like, like Henry yeah. Kissinger. Yeah. So, yeah. all right, um, go back go back to uh, the politician. I'll, I'll just say a couple more things about this. That So he sends the politician to the, the brother and he buys copies for the church history archives. I've got all the receipts from the, oh, so Christ. the evidence is pretty fun on that. Yeah. And... When he reads the politician, so he sends each of these, the general authorities, the politician in July of 1963. And in October of 63, the next conference, this is a critical timeline, because in October of 63, this is the first time where he mentions Gaddy Anton Roberts and secret yes. combinations in the Book of Mormon. Right. He's never done this before. Yeah. Of course, he's, you know, sermonized before using the Book of Mormon, but he's never yeah. read his political conspiracy theories into it right so he's using sacred scripture to justify his his extreme right-wing worldview and and of course you know after that he'll spend the rest of his life telling the saints to read the book of mormon and i get asked all the time you know what does he say about secret combinations and does it really talk about socialism and liberalism and all of this and i say to the people who ask me these questions i said you know the texts only matter depending on your biases if you have a certain bias that a liberal is really a communist, then yeah, you're going to read some stuff into it that's not there. Right. That's the only apostle that I that I know of who reads all of these conspiracy theories into his view of the scriptures. 
Yeah. And what's so fascinating is that then becomes scripture and that becomes doctrine. And from, from my, uh, you know, adulthood and, and early, you know, teenage years, the doctrine that the, the Gadiat and robbers were the communists, were the liberals. That was doctrine to me that had somehow come down from heaven. And for when I was reading that in your book and I found out the, the genesis of that, it was like, oh my gosh, that was amazing how that became doctrine. And it just plays into the idea when people say, well, it's not the church, it's the people. And it's like, where do the people get those ideas? And it's yeah. from examples like this. But that's amazing. Yeah, he gets pushback. So Benson's sharing these views in state conferences, of course, mm -hmm. which is what apostles do. And he's talking about Ganny and Roberts. And, but he even goes further. He, he, he visits a ton of state conferences in the 60s. And he's talking about Dr. King being a communist. He's talking about Dwight Eisenhower a communist and Lyndon Johnson, Jack Kennedy. And he even calls Richard Nixon a communist, which is just mind boggling because Richard <laughs> Nixon was a red baiter. Yeah. And so the saints write letters to the office of the first presidency. They say, President McKay, President Brown, what is going on? We went to church last Sunday to learn about Jesus and his crucifixion. What do we get? We're told that the Supreme Court's a bunch of commies and that the country's <laughs> heading for the cliff. We, we, we don't want to hear this. And now that's a vocal uh, minority. I think most mm -hmm. saints, like you said, Renee, um, are like your parents. Yeah. yeah. They're like my relatives who are swept up in this too. So they're not complaining about Elder Benson. They think he's prophetic. They think he's onto something. Exactly. But there's a vocal minority. And I don't even mean to say they're liberals or Democrats. I mean, they're even, they're moderate people. They just, they want to go to church and have a spiritual experience. And they're not getting it by this partisan apostle telling everybody that the government's corrupt. So they write letters to the first presidency and Henry Moyle said something really fascinating. He wrote a letter to, might've been J. Willard Marriott of hotel fame. And I think he wrote J. Willard Marriott, I think it was Marriott. And this would be 1963. And he said, um, he said, dear brother Marriott, we know as a church we're off target when people complain about the apostles who give sermons. Let's talk about Benson. Mm -hmm. we, we, we can't have this. We can't have our people go out and give sermons and then a bunch of people continually complain. And so uh, Moyle and Brown want McKay to rein in Benson. There, there are way too many uh, criticisms. They don't like it. It's not good for missionary work, mm -hmm. right? If you're trying to bring a convert to church and they're talking about right-wing politics, I mean, give me a break. Right. There's a place to express your political views, but not at church. Right. And you think the church would have learned that by now, but evidently that hasn't happened yet. But go on. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's let's let's get there. So yeah, yeah, that's uh, so. Anyway, I'll just speed this up. So by what happens is by McKay allows Benson to do what he does. Mm -hmm. He tells him, he says, "I don't want you going to the Burt Society and talking to their people. I don't want you." Um, you, you can't join the organization. I always get a kick out of it when Ezra would say, you know, uh, well, I wasn't, I would never joined the birth society. And just like, well, because the president wouldn't let you. He yeah. never told people that. Yeah. But his wife, Flora, was a member. All of his children were members. And Skousen was the same way. Skousen didn't have the ecclesiastical constraints that Benson had, but Skousen never joined for the same reasons. Yeah. Because it was controversial and he didn't want, he wanted to be able to have plausible deniability. Right. I'm not a member, but yet he speaks on their circuit. Right. 
Well, anyway, so McKay says, don't talk about birchers. Don't mention them. Don't recommend their literature like you've been doing. We're getting too many complaints. But you can still talk about anti-communism. And so when Benson, he agreed to those terms, he wouldn't mention the birchers anymore. But he's talking about birch, birch ideology. And so the saints didn't know the difference. And the general authorities are upset by this. And I get asked frequently, you know, do they agree with him? Do they this, they that? Are they liberal? I'm like, they're not liberal. But you have to understand something. There's a big difference between liberal or between uh, conservative and radical. Harold B. Lee and Joseph Fielding Smith cannot stand Ezra Taft Benson's politicking. But <laughs> if anyone were to ever call Harold Lee and Joseph Fielding Smith a liberal, they clearly don't know Lee or Smith or what liberals are. Yeah. So yeah. you can be a theological conservative and not be a political radical. And I get, I get, I get people who get upset with me all the time, especially cons well, they're conservatives who get upset with me when I when I make a distinction between conservative and radical. And so, a couple of things I'd say to that: number one, Hugh Brown and Henry Moyle and a few others in the church hierarchy called Benson radical mm -hmm. and extreme. Those are their words, not mine. Right. The second thing is is that if you look at what's mainstream in the Republican Party in the 1960s. You, you look at, and then Benson's views, they're worlds apart. So for example, by the latter part of the 1960s, Benson will leave the Republican Party and join the American Independent Party because the Republican Party in Benson's views has, has become too, too liberal. They're endorsing civil rights in 1968. They did in 64, but they're doing it in 68. Benson leaves the party over this. Benson's also embracing a host of conspiracy theories that he is accepted uncritically from the Birch Society. Hmm. So not just Ike being a commie, Martin Luther King being a commie, the idea behind the civil rights movement was to create, quote, a Negro Soviet Republic. The United Nations is communist. Right. Putting fluoridated fluoridation in the water is a communist plot to subvert public health. I mean, these are all extreme ideas that the mainstream Republican Party does not entertain. Yeah. And... Senator Goldwater, Barry Goldwater, you're from Arizona, Renee, right? I'm from Illinois. Illinois, so, okay. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, we moved, but yes, but I am familiar now that I live in Arizona, got to go down Goldwater Boulevard to get to Fashion Square Mall, so I'm- Very good. So, <laughs> so Barry Goldwater in the early 60s was the most prominent uh, Republican politician. He was a member of the U.S. Senate and he uh, later ran for the presidency GOP ticket in 1964. Mm -hmm. He does not support civil rights, but it's not because he thinks Dr. King's a commie. It's because he thinks that if the civil rights is to really uh, reach its full effect, the states have to organize and administer it, not the feds. Uh -huh. He's worried about it creating a federal bureaucracy. That's oh, what they're going to do. So that's a main difference between them. And that's why Benson's radical. And so in the 1970s, um, after McKay dies, they start to rein him in. Harold Lee, who's now in the first presidency under Joseph Fielding Smith, he approaches Benson. He said, you're done. You're not talking about Gadiant and robbers, secret combinations, title of liberty, none of that stuff. If anybody talks about it, it'll be the church president, not you. Yeah. And so he he puts a little, if I can use a horse metaphor, puts a bit in, in Benson's mouth, reins him in a little bit. And then in um, December of 1973, when Spencer Kimball becomes the president, Harold Lee now is dead. And Harold Lee was a pretty aggressive sort of dogmatic personality that a lot of the 12 feared. Yeah. And 
bitch, really rich baritone voice. And so had a presence about him. Well, Kimball didn't. He's a little guy. He's like five yeah. foot six, weighs 170 pounds. And Benson thinks that he can run all over Kimball because mm -hmm. they came into the quorum at the same time in 1943. And the only reason why Kimball's the president in 73 and not Benson is because they decided to make Kimball the senior, the, the senior uh, apostle because of, he was a little bit older than Ezra. Mm -hmm. That was it. Otherwise, they came into the quorum. They were ordained into the quorum on the same day in 1943. So Benson thinks he can run all over Kimball. And he gives an interview in 1974 to the Salt Tribune. And he said that this is this is the most popular time, I guess, when, when people hear what I'm about to tell you. They, they hear it from this Tribune interview. And that is that you can't be a good Mormon and a good and a Democrat. They're, they're mutually exclusive. He'd been saying that for years. Yeah. But now this is a, in private, but now yeah. this is a public forum. And so, of course, people complain, and President Kimball calls in Ezra and they say, Look, President Kimball said, You can't do this. You have a greater calling as, a, as president of the Quorum of the Twelve. Leave politics alone. But of course, this is in his blood. He can't leave politics alone because he, he thinks that he's been called to save the Constitution by President McKay. And, and by 1980, he gives uh, a devotional address at BYU. It's the last time that he'll speak publicly about Gaddy and robbers and all of this stuff because he mm -hmm. absolutely gets smacked down by the church president. And it's an address called 14 Fundamentals and Following the Prophet. And he says two, two really controversial things in there that'll get him in hot water. One is he says that the current prophet is more important than a dead prophet. Mm -hmm. And... Latter-day Saints probably believe that, mm -hmm. although I don't know if anyone would admit publicly today that whatever Russell Nelson says trumps Joseph Smith. I don't think anyone would say that mm. because Smith is supposed to be the prophet that, of the dispensations that unloaded or uh, introduced doctrine, most critical doctrine. But anyway, that's what he said. So it's an affront to earlier leaders. And the other thing he said was that really, really just just angered his critics. He said that the church can speak for God in political affairs. Mm. And of course the, the writing is on the wall that if Spencer Kimball's in frail health, he's going to die soon. Ezra Taft Benson will soon be the president. And what is he going to do? He's going to endorse Ronald Reagan and the Republican party. Mm. Evangelicals had done that a few years earlier, and that's where the church is now headed. Mm. So Kimball hears from dozens of people and he calls in uh, Benson and he tells him, he said, I've warned you to leave politics alone. You need to apologize to your fellow brethren in the 12. So he has him apologize in a quorum meeting in the temple the following week. And Kimball didn't think it was sufficiently contrite. And so he told Ezra, he said, I want you to come back the following week and you're going to apologize to all the quorums of 70. I mean, he's thoroughly embarrassing this proud man. And when um, Benson became the president in November of 1985, he, uh, it's been said that he didn't, I'm sure you've heard this, Renee, that he, he left politics alone. He just didn't mm -hmm. do all that stuff. That is so not true. Uh. It's, it's so far from the truth. In fact, when there was an opening in the 12, he wanted to appoint his son Reed into the 12, who was a bircher. He wanted to appoint Cleon Skousen. 
he wanted to appoint uh, another Bircher BYU professor uh, named Verlin Anderson, who used to write his talks for him in conference, Verlin Anderson. Mm -hmm. And so three Birchers he wanted to put into the 12. And of course, the 12 pushed back because by this point, they're trying to modernize the church. They recognize that if the church is being perceived as a right-wing conspiratorial church led by someone like Elder Benson, it's not going to be good for missionary work. You can't believe that the civil rights movement's fomented by communists and think that you're going to have missionary success in sub-Saharan Africa, mm-hmm. you know, trying to convert our, our black brothers and sisters. You're not going to have success in Northern Europe and Canada. These are places that love socialism. Mm-hmm. If you're going around saying that a socialist is really a, a communist. And so um, Spencer Kimball recognizes that that sort of hardcore rhetoric is bad for business. It's not good for the church's image. And Gordon Hinckley, of all people, recognizes this himself. And I get asked, you know, if Hinckley and Benson are at odds politically, which they are, mm-hmm. why, is Benson, why does Benson call him in as the counselor? And it's a good question. And the, the answer is, is that Hinckley had been leading the church since 1981. Mm-hmm. When um, Spencer Kimball and his two counselors, Nathan Tanner and Marion Romney, fell ill, all three of them fell ill, they brought in a, a, a third counselor in, in Gordon Hinckley, who was literally a one-man show running the church for a long time. Right. And so Benson had no choice but to retain him because of his experience. And then the other counselor he had warm affection for, which is, of course, Tom Monson. Mm-hmm. But if Hinckley hadn't been in the first presidency, there's no way in God's green earth that Benson would have called Gordon Hinckley into the first presidency. It's so, so fascinating. It's it's fascinating because you put that in a current current situation with, you know, uh, if, according to the the commentary that the church would like for everyone to believe. Nelson just tripped over, a, a, you know, a cornstalk and had a little fall, but he's fine and he's recovering well and can't wait to get back to work. But we all know he's 99 and, you know, probably a lot more ill than they want us to think. And then you think, well, Henry Iring seems to be, who's running the church right now, you know, because we have that history of, of Gordon Hinckley, you know, when all of these men were suffering from all these different illnesses and it's just not how they, you know, play it, you know, how it's, how it's, portrayed how they would like for us to think that it's running. Well, I think, but, you know, looking back, and I'm going to speak now from the hundreds of pages of first presidency meeting minutes and Quorum of the 12 meeting minutes that I've read. So this is where, what I'm about to say, this is where I'm informed, is that if you look at different presidencies, you know, that, that these guys, they, they're, they're older, you know, they, they're subject to health limitations like the rest of us. And if you look at, um, if you look at David O. McKay, for example, there was an interesting power struggle in the 1960s about who ought to run the church when he was frail. I mean, he had moments of lucidity where he was okay to make decisions. And then the next day he didn't, he was in a fog. He didn't know what was going on. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is, is that you get in the sixties, the quorum of the 12 thought that they ought to step into that vacuum. And of course the two counselors thought that that was their role. Mm-hmm. And so you you see that a lot. And with um, Hinckley, I haven't seen the meeting minutes from the 80s, but my impression from talking to people and other things I've read is that there was great deference shown to Hinckley 
um, in the 80s to make critical decisions because he was known to be a brilliant administrator. Mm-hmm. And back in the 60s, a lot of the leaders did not trust Hugh Brown because he was a liberal. He was a socialist. Yeah. And they, they, they recognized that he was a great, great speaker. Okay, great sermons, but in terms of decision making, they didn't trust him. And but Hinckley, they did. And so you, you get different occasions like that. And you, um, you know, when Tom Monson fell ill during the latter part of his presidency, uh, you know, there's no question that the 12 were running the church then right, and right. some dominant voices within the 12. I don't think mm-hmm. for a moment that Henry Iring was taking the lead because it's just not his personality. Right, right. Yeah. That's so interesting. So bring us to um, the the leftover Benson smoke that's still kind of running, if you know, sitting at the top of the room of the Mormon Church, and how the things that were said, like you you know, you quoted in the '60s and the '80s, the 14 fundamentals are still being repeated, and and the Gadiat and robbers are still being repeated. So how was his influence? How is that still being continued today? Well, the church, so first of all, the church, they they led a purge in the early 90s to get rid of some of these extremists, the people who were members of the Burt Society, people who started to stockpile weapons, people who started to, to create an excessive food supply, more than just the year allotment the church had counseled. I mean, these are really prepper end time people mm-hmm. and massive purge in the early 90s to get rid of them. and the um benson's never lost his following never ever lost his following there's always been a critical mass of benson's and scousing people in utah idaho and arizona Hmm. and other places too but those are the critical states Mm -hmm. and i grew up in maine and you know in my ward we may have had maybe one scousing person right i mean it just wasn't an issue in maine interesting yeah the church is different no matter where depending on where you go Exactly. So, um, so they never went away. And with the internet, of course, it created a community for these folks to come together and to post uh-huh. Benson and Skousen talks and to put uh, little YouTube clips of a Benson speech sermon from the 1960s. You see that with Julie Rowe, the end times yeah. woman. You've seen it with the Daybells. You've seen it with other people who've had a digital footprint. They're they're putting Benson scows in everywhere. And frankly, Renee, the church does not know what to do with these people. Right. And there are so many of them that if you were to literally purge them, it would, it would be a PR nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, last summer, or just this summer, I guess, I was at a conference in New York. It was the, the Mormon History Association Conference. It's the mm-hmm. leading conference for people who write Mormon history. And I was there and uh, my friend wanted a BYU professor friend of mine. He said, I want you to meet another friend of mine, a retired BYU professor. And I said, well, why do I need to meet her? And well, because she knows Dallin Oaks. She's close, very close friends with Dallin Oaks. I said, okay. And she used, this woman used to cook for Dallin Oaks's mother. And so there was a closeness there. I, I don't think this woman had married and Oaks's mother, of course, was a widow. So there was a closeness between these two women. They were in the same ward. I think they lived near each other. So um, so Oaks Dallin used to come over to the house when this BYU professor, I don't want to use her name. I don't have her permission. Sure. Um, 
Dowd would come over with his wife and this BYU retired professor who was there, by the way, when Oaks was a president. So they knew each other from that angle and they would enjoy meals together. And uh, Dallin's mother died, President Oaks's mother died, and he still comes over to dinner. This woman still cooks Dallin and his wife dinner. And so I, I met the woman at the conference, this BYU professor, retired. And I said, when's the last time you saw President Oaks? She looked at me and she said, oh, I saw Dallin and his wife about three nights ago. And I said, oh, how often do you see him? Quite a bit. He likes my cooking. And then she told me the story about cooking for his mother and all that. Oh my gosh. And I said, what do you talk about? And she said, uh, well, whatever he wants to talk about. You know, I, I'm careful not to pry or push. And I said, what did you talk about three nights ago? And she said, how right-wing extremism is damaging the church. Interesting. Yeah. And just, just they don't know what to do. Like the COVID vaccinations, they don't, they respect people's free agency, of course. But they're sending out passive aggressive. I'm not criticizing this. I'm glad they do it. But they're yeah. sending out passive aggressive pictures of them getting vaccinated rather than just telling people, go get vaccinated. Right. Unless your, right. Body, your body, your doctor tells you that you shouldn't because of your health. Yeah. Condition. Yeah. But anyway, so she's talking about that. Another story, quick story I'll share with you. And then I'll tie this into Tim Ballard if you want me to. Um, yeah. Is uh, General Authority had read my Benson book and he called me. And it's funny when, when these folks talk, they just like to talk. And I'm, I'm always careful to protect um, anonymity because I'd have to get his permission to use his name. But so he right. called me and he said, he said, Matt, I want to share experience that we just had recently. He said, I went back to, to a New York state and, and it, was, it wasn't very pleasant. There was a man in the stake that was a big MAGA person, election stolen, big Benson Skousen guy, conspiracy theories everywhere. And the worst, fine, you can believe whatever you want to believe. That's the genius of this country. But the problem is, is that when you're proselytizing people to your position at church, to the right. point where you're being obtrusive in lessons and sermons and all of that, the bishop had talked to this, this outspoken partisan man the state president had out. He wouldn't listen. He just thought he was right. And he had to convert people to his political position. And so the state president warned the, the general authority, when you come, we want you to talk to him. And it just so happened that Jeff Holland was coming to the same uh, state conference as the general authority. And the state president told Jeff Ho Elder Holland, we're going to put you next to this man at dinner. So giving you a heads up, please shut him up because we can't. Yeah. And, you know, I, I haven't talked to Elder Holland about this. I'm sure he's not happy. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh so I asked the general authority, I said, what happened? And he wrote, you know, he just kind of paused. We were on the phone, paused on the phone. And he said, the man just started going at it at dinner to Elder Holland, you know, and the government's corrupt and just all this stuff. Obama's a birther, just all this nonsense. Yeah. And he's quoting Benson. And Elder Holland didn't say a whole lot. He listened and he turned to the man and he all he said was one thing to him. He said, when's the last time you've heard us quote Elder Benson in general conference? All he said. And so this is a huge, huge, huge issue because you've got these holdovers from Benson and Skousen and they preach what we call white Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm. What that means is 
is that it means that the country was founded on Christian principles, that it was the, the Constitution was uh, founded on the Ten Commandments, and that if we're to, re- the founding fathers are Christian, and if we're to return to our rightful moorings as a nation, we need to reaffirm biblical values. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a whole bunch of things that's wrong with that, right? This country was not founded on Christian principles. It was founded right. to protect all religions, including non-belief, right? And I just talked to an evangelical minister the other day. I said, you know, he said, well, most of the people in the country were Christians. And I said, of course, that's true. But but saying that this is founded on Christian principles to, to privilege public policy from a biblical perspective, that's another whole issue. And that is not what the First Amendment says. So, so a lot of leaders believe this. And, the, you know, if you look at the, the Constitution, I teach the Constitution, so I don't want to be professorial for more than a second here. But if you look at um, when they wrote the Constitution, they were not looking at the Bible and Ten Commandments. There's no evidence for this. They're quoting European philosophers. They're quoting thinkers from the ancient world. They're, they're quoting a number of people. But the Bible and the Ten Commandments is not one of them. And I always tell, I told this evangelical minister recently, I said, you know, that it shouldn't be hard to grasp that the founding fathers had views on religion is different than we have today, right? Mm -hmm. That some of them were really uh, Bible-affirming Christians and some of them were not. Like Thomas Jefferson is not a Christian. Mm -hmm. He said something interesting that we ought to question the atonement of Jesus, and he calls it hocus pocus to his nephew. He doesn't believe in any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. So let's not lump them all together. And I've had people tell me they're a bunch of atheists too. And that's not true. Mm-hmm. And anyway, so um, so that's what white Christian nationalism is, is that if we're to save the country, we have to return to our Christian values. And, you know, of course, our Jewish brothers and sisters, our Muslim brothers and sisters and Hindus and others, they all have great values. Mm-hmm. But yet the Christian nationalists privilege Christian values, like there's something mm-hmm. really unique and set apart. But there are plenty of other faith traditions in the world, and even non-believers, who privilege family life and privilege mm-hmm. a life of morality and honest honesty and you know living an ethical life. Mm-hmm. So so that's what Benson and Skousen did to the churches that they're not they didn't create it, but they were promoting this idea of white Christian nationalism. And what you see today is you see a guy named John McNaughton in Utah who produces art that's full of white Christian nationalism themes. And you can talk about saving the Constitution as part of this, right? That the Mormon elders are supposed to save it. And now you've got more recently Tim Ballard, who has been locked into Skousen and Benson and these Christian nationalism themes. And he's um he's you know, he's written books at Desert Book has has published and sold. I'm told now that they're removed from their shelves because mm-hmm. of recent controversy with Ballard. But in his books, he's he's definitely promoting these, these Christian nationalism themes. And he creates, of course, his Underground Railroad thing. And it's really, you know, it sounds pretty good. We're saving the children from the trafficking of in the sex trade. It, that's a real thing. It does happen. Mm-hmm. And, but you know, I'll tell you how I look at someone like him. Years ago, this is how I think. So I'm just going to talk about me as a person. But when I was in Desert Book years ago and I picked up some of his books, one was called The Lincoln Hypothesis, in which Lincoln, um, he claims that Lincoln influenced, or excuse me, the Book of Mormon influenced Lincoln in the 19th century. I'm like, 
get real. Yeah. You know, this is me as a scholar of American history, putting my cap on. This is a joke. Abraham Lincoln did not read the Book of Mormon during the American Civil War. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So, you know, for anyone to publish that kind of dreck and to have Desert Book publish it, I was really disappointed. And it should have been in the fiction section, not in the history section. And so and then later on, of course, when I learned more about his um, he's working in his Operation Underground Railroad. You know, I'm really curious about the way his mind works and who he is based on some of the things he's written. So he's really I'm, I'm skeptical already uh, towards him. And then um, recently, of course, his film came out, I guess, last summer. And this is really what set me off that I hadn't seen the film, but I certainly know about it. And I've heard from people who have seen it, including my own sister. And, you know, he's identifying people in Congress and also Hollywood who are part of this nefarious sex trade. Mm-hmm. Now, keep in mind that QAnon has been talking about this for a long time. There's another, right. there's another bell to tell you it's nonsense. But he talks about um, Hollywood doing this. And I asked the person telling me, I said, you know, who in Hollywood is trafficking children? Oh, they're just all doing it. Yeah. Wait a minute. That is so irresponsible. Right. Well, why would they do it? Well, for money. Why would they do it for money? They're already millionaires. Right. Why would they risk their lives to go to prison to do this? That's the sort of, this is how these folks work is they, they, they know that, that what we call low informed voters believe this nonsense and they peddle it and they don't give you names. They don't give you details. They don't give you any evidence. And, um, but that's what, that's what conspiracy people do. And, and of course, Ballard is, his game is up because of what we've seen in the news last. Right. And I love that you explained that in, in one of your you know references when you were talking about just asking the question, why, why would they have done that? What did they gain from it? Where did it go? I mean, just the whole, we, what, when, where, where, you know, asking those simple questions to start to create some critical thinking. And then I also think, like you said, living in the, predominantly LDS states, Utah, Idaho, uh, Arizona. And because I remember three years ago, my mother came to visit. She lives in the Utah area and she came to visit for Christmas and she brought her Julie Rowe material with her. And I had never heard of her before. And she said, have you heard of her? And I said, no. She started telling me about some of the stuff, how she had calculated with the book of Daniel and she had it all figured out when the second coming was coming. And I said, mom, and I said the exact same thing that you were saying. I said, mom, don't you think that President Nelson would tell us over the conference talk if this was true? Why do you why do we have to get this from this obscure woman in Salt Lake? Well, she's giving firesides. She's not making any money off of it. There's no she's not profiting from it whatsoever. It's just the goodness of her heart and her beautiful intelligence that she's doing this. And I thought, well, first of all, why is she giving firesides? Why is she being allowed to, to do firesides? And so that's the whole thing where these people who have some kind of a a narrative that sounds so convincing because they've got this data that they pulled from who knows where and so then they're invited to speak at a stake fireside and it's like maybe we should stop that or that would be a good way of stopping things well they did eventually yeah yeah finally yeah there was um they they set out i think this is in my book the church sent out a note saying that to seminary people that you can't, you shouldn't quote from Roe. You shouldn't quote from um, who's the guy that the book goes around about his visions. Um, Pontius. Oh, vision. Visions of glory. Yeah. Yeah. And so they, I thought that was interesting because it's, it's amazing to me that seminary people would quote this, this. Yeah. Direct. 
Yeah. It's, um, you know, there's there's enough good stuff that the church has put out over the years that you can talk about, whether it's scholarly right. or whether it's to serve your purposes. Right. And, but to quote some unnamed person, I don't know. I, I'm skeptical of these kinds of things because I think that people who produce them, they're taking advantage of people's wanting to believe in something greater than themselves. And, right. You know, to fill holes in our lives. And I can't speak to your mother, of course, Renee, but I know a lot of people who, you know, they, they where they consume their news. It just makes right. them angry. Right. And it gives them a lens by which to see things where they don't have to think critically because somebody else is doing that thinking for them. Right. I, I heard that in a in a um a political talk the other day. They said uh, this particular politician was uh, stating where his stats are currently. And he was saying, I'm doing really well with uh, Latino. I'm doing very well with Blacks. I'm doing very well for 18 to 35. The one area that he's not doing well with is the baby boomers. And that's because they get all their information from Fox News or CNN. And he said they don't listen, you know, baby boomers, not, you know, obviously holy, but don't listen to podcasts where the youth listen to podcasts where you get the different information and you can do some critical thinking. And if I, if I hear something on one podcast, I'll try to find them on another podcast or, you know, get a second version. And, you know, not a lot of people in my demographics are listening to Joe Rogan, you know, but I love, you know, as just, you know, to kind of, to kind of close out because you do have this amazing book that's coming out next year. And I think between, you know, these two books here, they were kind of like a preview of coming attractions for this book that you have coming out. And I'm ex so excited to, let me see if I can find, let me bring this book back up again to the picture of, can I, I don't know what this is a, set up as a movie, so I'm not going to be able to stop it, but um, it's the, uh, just so that everybody can see it. These are, you've got to, you've got to read all of these books. So this is the one we've highlighted tonight. This is the one and you've got to read this. And the beautiful thing about uh, about this, this yeah, second class saints comes out in July of 2024. And um, also this book is also available in audio, which is amazing. I love the gentleman that you hired to um, do the narrative on that. That was really good. Oh, I've never um, heard it. I don't even know him. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. But I wanted, you know, what this, this, the LDS gospel topics essay series, you know, as, as I mentioned, the gospel topics were something that kind of came out and we don't have time to go into it tonight, why it was written and, and um, the, you know, absolute disaster they were trying to avert uh, by writing this, but you know, you, the chapter that you contributed, you talked a lot about the, the black and, and the temple priesthood ban. And, and so, you know, you, what I like was at the end, you said the essay closes on an optimistic note, reminding readers that the LDS church teaches that all are alike unto God. It affirms that God is no respecter of persons and emphatically declares that anyone who is righteous, regardless of faith, is favored of him. The universalist message, notwithstanding the race and the priesthood essay, is problematic, both for what it says and for what it does not say. And I think that's the problem is a lot of times, you know, there's a lot of things that are said, but it's the parts that are left out that you need to use your critical thinking skills and to find out a little bit more about it. And then the other thing is, tell me if you know, in, in your book, The Mormon Church and the Blacks, you have a quote in here from, um, it says, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, Mormons advanced a second rationale for priesthood denial. Church leaders drew a correlation between skin color and spiritual worthiness. In this interpretation, most prominently promoted by Mormon church leader Joseph Fielding Smith, 
Blacks came to earth under a divine curse because they lacked spiritual valor in a pre-earth life. This pre-earth existence culminated in a cosmic struggle, a war in heaven, pitting the followers of Jesus against the followers of Satan. Smith and other leaders taught that there were no neutrals in the war in heaven, but some were less valiant in their support for God. And these spirits born into the African race became the cursed lineage foretold in both biblical and Mormon scripture. And what the interesting thing about that is um, Harold B. Lee also used that rationale to describe why people uh, came to this earth and took on bodies that were severely disabled, that they were not as valiant, that they they, they were said, well, you'll, you can have a body, but it's not going to be a perfect workable body because you weren't as valiant. And of course, that's been refuted now by other leaders that have said, no, no, no. It was because they were so valiant in the pre-earth existence that they 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 didn't need to be tested. So that's the new thing. And it just makes me think, where do we come up with these ideas? Where does this thought process? And then to say these things, and then as we said with Ezra Taft Benson, they get soaked in by innocent members of the church that are living busy lives like we all are. And they go, Okay, well, it was said by a prophet, therefore it is doctrine. And that's the dangerous part. But I can't encourage my listeners enough to, you know, pre-order your book. It's going to be amazing. It does raise the question that I've heard so many people say that, no, 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 the priesthood ban was taken off the earth because finally Spencer Kimball received a revelation that they had been praying for. And it's like, wasn't though? Were there some other circumstances? And it's just so important to know all the details to really do some critical thinking. So thank you so much for sharing your wealth of information. We could be here for five hours. <laughs> I don't do long form like John DeLynn, unfortunately, but I hope that to have you, I'd love to have you back when your book comes out, let's get together again and talk about it. And uh, because then you'll be able to really get into the meat of, of like you said, is it going to be on audiobook? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. excellent. Yes. Mostly I'm okay. yeah. That's excellent because I'm, I'm okay with 21 hours. You know, sometimes I'll download a book and it'll be like 21 hours. And I'm like, that takes care of my week in the car. So I'm good. You know, <laughs> I live out in the boonies in Arizona. So for me, just to get to Safeway is a good 20 minutes. So, oh, wow. so yeah. So I live, a, I live a, a lot of time in my car. So I love audiobooks. So I will definitely be downloading that. So thank you, Dr. Harris. Did you know there's another Dr. Harris out there that teaches, I think, in Tennessee? Did you know that? And I was looking you up, another Dr. Harris popped up, and I'm like, that doesn't sound right. So I had to put the L in there. Oh, okay. So is there anything else that you want to, to share with the listeners about how they can find out more about, you know, what you're doing and what you've written? Yeah, I'm going to, I'm, my wife has been getting on me for a long time to update my webpage. So that'll be coming over the Christmas holidays. Oh, I can, excellent. I can send that to you and that'll take you to all the podcasts I've done, the books I've published, speaking engagements, all that stuff. Oh, speaking engagements. That is exciting. I love it. So by the first of next year, we'll, we'll have a new website with all that information. Yes. It's yes. <sighs> so yeah. exciting. Well, if I can't go to Colorado State University, Pueblo, then I will just have to go to a speaking engagement. So, well, that'd be great. I, yeah. I will come to Arizona and let you know. Oh, that. Oh, I love that even more. Okay, let's get that set up. Yeah. <laughs> well, good night. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Renee. Nice to talk to you today. Yeah. Bye bye. 
Oh my gosh, what a what a treat to have Dr. Harris on my show tonight. And I hope you learned some things. And obviously in an hour and a half, we can just skim over the top. So you really do need to invest some time in his publications and uh, pre-order his new book. So thanks for joining me tonight. Join me again next week. I believe my next week is going to be a roundup week with DVace. So that'll be a fun podcast to do. So thanks for joining me on, let's go over here. She became visible. Good night. Thank you for joining me today on She Became Visible. Join me each week as my guests and I explore the path of womanhood and tell all our stories. We'll talk about finding the courage to be ourselves and motivate each other to be everything that we're capable of and meant to be, no matter what happens around us. Please like, share, and subscribe. And don't forget to donate at She Became